Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Welcome to Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. We're glad you have joined us again this week. My name is Don Payne and I get to be your host, but I also want to welcome Tessa Thompson to the podcast as a guest co-host. Yeah, Tessa serves in our student life department, helping direct student life and programming, which basically means she gets to do a lot of fun stuff. Yes, Uh, yes. But you should probably introduce yourself. Yeah, so I work in student life, and basically our goal uh, within the seminary context is to help students be able to complete their programs um, effectively, efficiently, holistically. So I'm Uh, enjoy listening to you, Don, and now I'm glad to get to ask some of my own burning questions. Tessa, welcome. I'm really, really glad you are going to co-host for a couple of episodes. Actually, Tessa connected us with our guest today, who is Dr. Christina Hitchcock, and Dr. Hitchcock is Professor of Pastoral Theology at the University of Sioux Falls, which you might guess is in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Christina, welcome. Welcome to Engage. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. We are delighted you're here. Uh, Dr. Hitchcock was on campus a few months ago to speak about uh, the topic of today's podcast, and we wanted to hear more from her, uh, particularly as her topic now culturally has some even deeper or newer layers of significance. Anyway, she's the author of a fairly recent volume entitled The Significance of Singleness, a Theological Vision for the Future of the Church that was released by Baker Academic in 2018. Uh, Christina, you're kind of on the seminary podcast circuit now, aren't you? I've done a few, which is lots of fun. I'm really enjoying it. Well, yeah, I'm wondering, is, is there anything cooler than being on seminary podcasts? No, obviously there's not. I mean, seminary is the coolest graduate school there is. And then to get on a seminary podcast, I mean... You've there's arrived. No, you know, there's nowhere to get. If you were on NPR, that would be a step down. I probably. probably. I mean, unless I was being interviewed by a seminary professor on NPR, maybe. Well, well clearly, clearly. I don't know yeah. where. Yeah, I'm not sure where you go from here. You know, no. once you seminary podcast, because this That's is where right. all the cool people really are. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, Tessa, you had uh, some earlier acquaintances with Christina, so um, give us a sense of that. Yeah, so Christina, it's great to have you here again, and I so appreciate your wise words uh, in 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 relationship to this idea of singleness, especially with our in our evangelical culture. Um, So we'd love to hear some some of what you've come to discover, and uh, it's it is funny. I I did recently get married. I'm almost 30. So this has been something that's actually very dear to my heart as well as we've talked about. And it, I, I got married on March 7th. So right before all the stay at home orders and, and a lot of well-intentioned people have been, wow, aren't you so glad that you got married before you went into quarantine? And, and I think some, sometimes those, those comments, while well-meaning and while I am very glad I was able to get married, it always has this undertone of question of like, okay, because I, I wouldn't have been okay if I was single or, or now I'm better somehow or, um, you know, it, it would have been too difficult to be alone. So, so while I think that uh, quarantine has actually done something in terms of bringing up 
the very real experience of singleness. Um, but talk through that a little bit. Like, why is that stigma there? Why, where does that marriage preference come from, especially in the church? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a huge question. And I think um, a, a difficult one. I think it comes from more than one source. But I do think it seems to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that the American evangelical church privileges marriage over singleness. Um, and that marriage is the prize that evangelicals are, are taught from a very young age to go after. And I think especially women. Um, and so I think there's, there's lots of different things related to this. I think, um, I, I, but I think overall, uh, the American evangelical church has taken the sexual ethic of the, of the, Amer of the larger American culture and then has essentially adopted as their own, but kind of given it a spiritual gloss or veneer. And that, of course, is marriage. Um, and so the, the wider culture sees sex um, and a sexual or romantic relationship as kind of the thing that makes us fully grown up and fully human, because it's that, that thing that we engage in on a, as, as autonomous individuals, um, which is really kind of the, the crux of what it means to be American, is to be free and independent. Um, and our sexual lives have come to be the way in which we most fully express that. And so to be in a sexual relationship is to be free and independent, to be a true American, to be a true grown up, to be a true human. And I think the church has largely imbibed that, um, but recognizes also at the same time that, of course, uh, the, the way in which the culture practices that isn't, doesn't work with Christianity. So we've, we've kind of said we have to have that, but in, in marriage. And so marriage is the place where we can have um, our sexual uh, identity uh, most fully and freely expressed, and we can become that full human being, uh, that truly grown-up person, that really true American person. Um, and so I think the church is, is really kind of become part of that American agenda, almost without realizing it. Is it fair to say that in maybe a subtle manner, singleness for at least lots of Christians has become problematic? Or, or is that a, an overstatement? No, no, I think it is problematic for, for a lot of Christians. They, um, they see singleness as problematic? Yeah, I think they do. Um, so I'm a college teacher and um, I, m most of my students, I'm a college teacher at a small Christian liberal arts college. Um, and I certainly think most of my students come to college expecting to find their spouse there. Um, and that if they don't, I think especially for the female students that this can genuinely lead to a spiritual crisis because they've been taught their whole lives that um, that marriage is God's marriage and motherhood are God's best plan for them, and that uh, it's what God wants for them, and that God will provide a, a a good young Christian man to help this all happen. And when that doesn't happen in the time frame that they're taught to expect, they start to question a lot of the things they've been taught as Christians. Um, what does God really want from me? Does God really love me? Um, how do I find a place in God's community if I'm not married and I'm not a mother? Um, because those are the ways in which so many women enter into the church. Um, and so I think it, it certainly creates a spiritual crisis for, for many people who are facing singleness. And I think the church itself doesn't know exactly what to do with single people. And so the church also sees singleness as a problem, usually a problem to be solved by 
helping people get married. Right. Right. Or providing some sort of program that's specific for a single group yeah. where they can enjoy themselves. Yeah. Right. And almost always, I feel like the underlying point of those singles groups is to pair people off. I mean, this is how it's, it's a Christian dating opportunity. Um, and, and again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not opposed to people meeting each other and getting married, but it does seem that the church's primary response to single people is to create opportunities so that they can stop being single eventually. Yeah. And I, I, um, I noticed there was a, a, an article in Relevant Magazine that came out recently that talked about why specifically single women are leaving the church and they pointed to this this sense of there not being a place for them mm -hmm. and and i'm curious christina how you understand uh the theological underpinnings of what kind of propels our programming propels our space making um where are some of those theological breakdowns that make it so that there aren't natural spaces for single people yeah, I, you sent me that article and I read it. I thought it was very interesting. Um, and, I, and I thought it was very true to my own experience. Um, I haven't done any studies on it or anything, but it certainly rang very true for me that um, singleness, I think, in the church is doubly hard on women. And I don't at all mean to downplay the experience of men. Um, but women so often in evangelical churches, especially evangelical churches that don't have a clear understanding of women in leadership um, in the church. Uh, women so often enter into the church via their husband or children. And those other people make spaces for women in the church. Um, so like I, I, I have students who, female students who want to marry a pastor because that's the way that they see themselves getting into church leadership is via their husband. Um, I certainly experienced when I had my first child that all sorts of opportunities opened up for me, uh, both both of fellowship and community, but also um, in other ways, um, because suddenly I was a mother. And so I, I had access to new groups and to new options that I hadn't had before. Um, and so I think, uh, I think singleness shines a bright light on the fact that um, the way in which the church, many evangelical churches, um, order themselves naturally exclude certain people um, and that it doesn't actually that our churches don't always take as seriously as they should uh, the giftings of the Holy Spirit rather that uh, our churches are often making decisions about who leads and how they lead uh, based on things more like uh, sex gender social status uh, relationships with other people. Um, and again, not at all to say that those things aren't important. Um, they are, but they don't strike me as the way the New Testament talks about how the church is organized, that the church is organized um, by the workings, empowerings, and giftings of the Holy Spirit. And I do think the way in which single people encounter the church helps us see that where we're falling short in that area. Are, are there versions of what you've described that are true for single men? as well as single women? Yes, absolutely, I think there are. So for example, um, uh, it's, it, churches very much like to hire uh, as their pastors men who are married. And I think one of the reasons for this, I think there's more than a few, but I mean, one of the reasons is, and, and my, my dad was a pastor, I know how a pastor's wife works. Um, like you, you kind of get two for one when you hire a married man. Um, his wife is, is, 
many, many times going to be very helpful and, gonna, and is going to back him up and kind of be your second employee who you don't have to pay. Um, but I also think um, having a wife makes a male pastor safe, um, that he has proved certain things, um, that he is heterosexual, that he is not a pedophile, that he is, you know, it's, you know, those, and we live in a sexually dangerous world. That is absolutely true. Um, and so we look for markers that make people in authority look safe. I mm. think the last few years have proved that those markers are not necessarily trustworthy. Mm -hmm. um, but I certainly think that they're kind of the, the markers we look for. And so single men, I think, uh, not just pastors, but single men in the church are looked at with a lot of suspicion and a lot of fear that they're not safe. Um, I think single women are often kind of pitied and single men uh, at a certain age are, are looked at with a lot of suspicion. Interesting. That they're not safe people to be around. How do you think this impacts discipleship and the formation, the godly formation of people when this particular set of identity constructs uh, is superimposed upon them by their churches? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it can have lots of consequences. I mean, one of the things that I've spent some time thinking about is the cost to friendship that are, um, that are, sexual culture both in the world and, and in the church is is extracting from us that it's that that friendship is not valued or recognized um now in the way that i think uh christian fellowship requires um because again because every relationship is seen first and foremost through a sexual lens um and because of course we're we're a culture that is um, experimenting sexually in all sorts of ways, no relationship, almost no relationship is free from the suspicion that, sex, that, that it's a sexual relationship. And so friendship has become suspect. Uh, friendship between two people of the same sex has become suspect, and, and I think even this is much more traditional, friendship between people of opposite sexes is, is suspect. What's really going on there? But I think this is really dangerous when it comes to discipleship, because discipleship, of course, is something we do in community. Um, we don't follow Christ all by ourselves. Um, we, we weren't meant to, and of course we can't. When we enter into relationship with Jesus, we enter into relationship with all his people. Um, and and, and uh, the culture in which everything has to run through a sexual lens makes that kind of community very difficult. And it, and it requires us to focus all of our community on the nuclear family, because the nuclear family is the one place that has the possibility of being free of sexual suspicion. So the church gets narrowed down into the nuclear family. And I, I think we often see that the nuclear family is seen as the, the prototypical church. So the church is modeled after the family, not vice versa. And so I think that gets the church wrong. I think it gets the family wrong. And I think that means discipleship is, becomes modeled after this kind of nuclear family, 1950s Americana nuclear family patriarchal um, unit that I don't think has, has much uh, support in the New Testament. It's not the New Testament is opposed to nuclear family. Yeah, it's just, just not, 
family was very different. Right. It's not the model that, that, that the New Testament is holding up as for how to do everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting how you um, just talk a little bit about that uh, sense of community and how actually in your book you mention that single people actually give us a even a more robust understanding of what God meant in, in terms of, of living together. And I going back to Don's question of the implications then on, on what sanctification and growth look like as well. Um, I think we have a pretty clear picture of, you know, the uh, bridegroom of Christ, the church, God relates mm-hmm. to us as, as a lover to his bride, that we have the sense of uh, robust sanctification happens in marriage. You learn to lay your life down for one another, but often for single people, it's, it's the, the path feels unclearer. We don't have a, a, a direct vision. Can you fill us in just a bit on, on how you see um, holiness through, through a single lens? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I do think sanctification is so often associated with marriage, that marriage is the place where you learn to sacrifice and love another person. And then parenthood, you know, just doubles down on that. Um, And certainly, of course, all of those things can be used to sanctify us. But I I do tend to think, I always think people who say that are the people who got married very young, uh, because I always want to say, have you tried being celibate for 10 straight years as an adult? Uh, that might sanctify you a little bit. <laughs> um, because, of course, the kind of singleness that that I'm talking about and that we're talking about is a singleness that involves uh, celibacy and um, not the promiscuous um, sexual life of Hollywood, uh, kind of do whatever you want. So singleness, I think, is... Um, of course we can be sanctified in marriage, but the idea that, it's, it, that it is kind of the harder road than singleness, I find frankly laughable um, because, because marriage um, is, is the primary avenue by which so many of our longings and desires start to be fulfilled, which is a wonderful and good thing. Um, but singleness by its very definition is where we learn, we have to learn to trust God for those things that we have been taught our whole lives will be supplied in some other way. Um, so community, love, relationship, um, intimacy, um, uh, security, uh, financial security, social security, um, the next generation of, of people coming along, all of those things that we're taught to hope for and long for in singleness, uh, and again, a celibate singleness, those things are not going to be available to us in the, tr- in the ways that our culture teaches us to expect to experience them. And I really think anyone who's serious about um, committing their, their, their sexuality to Christ in their singleness, <clears throat> meaning to be um, celibate, um, is going to have to learn to depend on Jesus and to trust Jesus to supply the things that normally come in other ways. Um, in my book, I, I have a chapter on Macrina, who was a fourth century um, monastic, is, is kind of anachronistic to apply to her, but that's essentially what she was an early monastic. And she uh, saw singleness as a way to uh, train herself in virtue. And by virtue, she meant um, the ability to fully trust God for everything. Um, and so she kind of said, I'm not going to I'm not going to take advantage of those things the world has to offer that, that are there to take care of me. I'm going to purposely let those things go so that I can learn every day that the person I depend on is Jesus, that the person who supplies all my needs is Jesus. 
And that doesn't mean she, she goes away from community and never has any friends or anything. In fact, those things are supplied, but in ways that are different and in new avenues than she would have been uh, taught to expect in that time and that place. And her time and her place is actually quite similar to our time and our place. And so I do think singleness um, trains us to think about um, God's future and, and the way in which God intends for community to exist. Well, can you tell us more about that? How is singleness a, a picture of the future? Yeah, I mean, so I think, I think singleness uh, tells us um, three in particular. I think uh, that the singleness is, first of all, a sign that the church is our true and eternal family, um, that uh, the church is the one human institution that Jesus says will go on into the resurrection. The church is, the, is that human institution that will be raised from the dead. Um, we're given no guarantee, in fact, quite the opposite, that marriage will go into the resurrection, um, that our relationship in God's future will be always through Jesus Christ. So my husband won't so much be my husband as my brother in Christ. My children won't so much be my children as my brother and my sister in Christ. Um, that doesn't deny our biological relationship. It just means that God's future is when we will be related to each other um, through Jesus. Um, in, a, in the way that we were always supposed to be. And so, of course, biologically, my children will still be my children. But first and foremost, they'll be my brother and sister in Christ. So the church is our first family. And it's easy to forget that, but that is God's future for us. Um, secondly, I think uh, singleness reminds us that our identity is found most fully and truly in Jesus Christ. Um, that I am... Uh, that I am a Christian. That is my first identity. Um, and uh, in, in our current situation, so often our identity is found through who we're married to, who our children are, what our job is, how much money we have. And again, not all of those things are bad. And those are even good markers of who we are and how we fit into a community. But so often, I think the church allows those things to, be, to shape our identity in the fullest possible way. And I think in our current situation that our sexual relationships are the ways in which we most fully identify ourselves. And so uh, singleness says, no, my, my truest identity is found in Jesus Christ. And then of course, singleness is a sign of the future resurrection. Um, that singleness now is a sign of what God's, God's future world is going to look like. Um, I mean, when, when the, the Jews, the Pharisees asked Jesus about the woman who's been married seven times, et cetera. Uh, Jesus really, really turns the question around on them and says, um, he says, you're thinking about God's future the whole wrong way. God, in God's future, we, we will, God's children will be resurrected um, and they will be like the angels. And he, and he says, they will be the ones who can call God father. And so that idea that we are related first and foremost to God himself and then to each other through Jesus, um, and that uh, community is is in and through Jesus Christ, not through um, the communities that we're used to now. And again, that doesn't mean those communities are bad. It means they are looking forward to something more. And singleness is a sign of that future thing. Mm. It's almost like we we can practice being kingdom citizens through singleness, or singleness yes. might be the best the best anticipatory practice. Yeah. For Absolutely, right. singleness is the training ground for God's future. Wow. And if the church can't recognize that, then I think the church 
should, should it, when the church can't see singleness as a sign of God's future, then I think the church is not being future oriented. Uh, and that's a real problem. Like, like how we treat singles is, is kind of a, you know, the canary in the coal mine. Are we, are we really looking forward to God's future or not? Okay. So, so I'm, uh, as a theologian, I'm thinking now about how the way uh, we envision and treat singleness is an eschatological litmus test. Yes. And in fact, I've just been teaching on eschatology the last couple of weeks in, <laughs> in mm -hmm. one of my classes. And uh, it never occurred to me that singleness has so many eschatological implications to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why the the subtitle of my book is a theological vision for the future of the church. Yeah. That I really do think um, that most the evangelical church in general is thinking about marriage through the lens of Genesis one and two, um, and so it is a backward looking looking understanding of who we are as people and how we relate to each other. Whereas um, what, what I think the church on every level should be doing is looking forward to God's future and that God's future is always telling us who we are. And that even the Garden of Eden is only meant to propel us to look forward, not to look back. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so the, the folks who are most dependent on Genesis for understanding marriage and singleness, um, I think are really not just wrong on the singleness question, but it's just not the, the right way to be thinking about who we are as a people. We are a forward, future-oriented people. Yeah. And, and the more we can live in a way that trains us to be ready for God's future, uh, the better. And that doesn't mean every single one of us has to be single, but it means the church needs to see singleness as a sign of God's future and embrace it as that sign. Mm. And be willing to learn from single people. This is what it looks like to live in God's future. And I think it has great implications too for marriages and the way that we propel people into marriage with these yes. idealistic hopes and visions of all oh, my loneliness will be gone and, mm -hmm. and I'll have this, this sense of completion. And, and the reality is, is loneliness is, is a reminder that we need Jesus always, mm -hmm. even in marriage. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, I think that's, that's beautiful. I, I bet also during during COVID and um, quarantine, people are feeling acutely their singleness, but people are feeling acutely their marriage <laughs> choices as well. And yes, important. Yeah, yeah all, I mean, all that, is, <laughs> that is all that is all very true. Because during this quarantine, uh, it was about three weeks in that I think uh, my wife and I had she knew she knew it was coming. I was blindsided. <laughs> We, we had a real good one, <laughs> a real, real good blowout um, because, and, and that's, that's in the context of a really good marriage. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, loneliness and those relational uh, challenges are not, um, they're not the sole domain of any yeah. marital status. Hey, on, yeah. um, we're, we need to kind of start to land our plane here, but I would, uh, Tessa mentioned COVID and, we're um, we're a couple of months in as we're recording this. We're almost a couple of months in to mm -hmm. shut down things like that. And I'm curious what some of your observations are on how how this whole social phenomenon has impacted many who are single. Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and and I'll freely admit up up front that I I'm not sure. Um, obviously, I'm in shutdown too, so I don't I don't exactly know what other people are doing and how it's affecting them. Um, I I do 
Um, I have noticed, so for example, with my students, especially those who are seniors, so they're right on the verge of, of, um, of launching into the world kind of on their own, um, they've had to leave their dorms and, and go someplace else. And especially for those who don't have uh, a, a stable and loving nuclear family, it has um, really caused a lot of difficulty and confusion for them. Because if you can't go home to be with your parents, where do you go? Um, and, and of course, they're 22 years old, they're adults, and at the same time, they're kind of in this limbo. And um, I haven't, I don't know, but, I, I, but, the ch but the church is not where they're turning to figure out their kind of practical, concrete situation. Um, and I, I think that's too bad. Um, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think they're wrong, but I think the church is not the first place where single people try to figure out how to be single and to do it well in just the practical day-to-day -day issues of what that looks like, that we are trained to turn to the nuclear family. And that, of course, means either um, a romantic partner or parents or siblings. And again, I'm not at all saying that's bad. Those are wonderful relationships to have and to be able to depend on. But in the absence of those, what do people do? And I haven't seen the church um, clearly present uh, a plan or a structure to help people there. And again, COVID, which came on us so suddenly, um, is only highlighting that defect because it's easier to, to hide that defect or to pretend like it's not there when life's going on as normal. But when everything is kind of thrown into disarray and people's normal um, structures are taken away from them, then the, the lack in the church is, is highlighted. Hmm. But I'd be interested in what you all have been seeing as well. I think that there is a, a hope and a possibility of, like you said, it's a, it's a heightened awareness um, because at this point we can empathize probably more greatly than before of, oh, what would it be like to be at, a, at home alone uh, mm -hmm. during this time? And, and I think it, it adds to probably the, the nuance um, with some of the ethics behind the stay-at-home order uh, mm -hmm. and how, how do you expect someone to be completely in, in solitude and, and again, bringing to light the tension of, of people who live lives differently than the norm um, or that I don't think it's really the norm, honestly, no. but uh, the accepted social norm. So. Yeah. Christina, if um, for, for those who maybe have not thought about this as much as they should, or they're simply, they're just starting to think about it. Mm -hmm. If you, had to identify for them one very practical first step. What, what would you tell them to do? Well, read my book, obviously. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, I that's a that's a great question, and it might you know it might depend on the person whether they're married or single themselves, that sort of thing. I mean, I think um, I think for married people, one of the first steps I would say is just start being friends with single people and not as a favor to the single people, but rather hoping that they're going to do you the favor of being your friend because, um, and seeing them as in the light of someone who, from whom we can learn so much about what it means to depend on Jesus and to trust in him. Um, I, especially since I've had kids have found that I really want to have single people around. So my kids have more than just one vision for their own future, that they can meet single people who are happy, who are, um, spiritually fulfilled, who have um, wonderful lives, and they can say, 
I can do that. I don't have to be scared of that. In fact, that's a good thing. And I see my family embracing that. Um, and so not, not befriending single people as kind of your, your good deed of the week. Or your baby's as Right, right. But as, as saying, hey, I want to learn what you're learning. Can you share your life with me? Can I learn from you, please? Um, and for single people, um, I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with being kind to the church and not giving up on the church, which I know is really tempting for a lot of single people. I totally get that. Uh, being gracious to the church and not being afraid to speak up and to be determined and persevering. Um, and to see that as part of your calling for the church right now, that you are a, a sign of God's future and that you, you know, that, that should give you a sense of boldness and, and excitement that you can be assigned to your church of what it looks like to trust Jesus in a way that is totally countercultural and, and really genuinely extraordinary to a lot of people. I, I really appreciate that in, in part because you're, you're really stretching my, my own thinking about this. Um, partly, well, probably a lot of reasons my thinking needs to be stretched, not least because it's been a long time since I've been single, yeah. but for other reasons as well. And, and one of the ways you're stretching me, and I hope many of us, is to think of uh, single people as probably one of our most powerful discipling and formational resources rather yes. than rather than merely thinking or you know only thinking about how do we disciple single people mm -hmm. what you said means that they are some of our greatest discipling resources that the church needs um, to be kingdom citizens. Mm, yeah. This, uh, this is really exciting. We're going to say, Tessa, you've got the last comment here and then we're going to. Oh, gonna... I, I just wanted to observe one thing that I love that Christina points out in her book is that none of us are, even if you are married, it doesn't guarantee you will be married forever. And that singleness could happen to any of us at any time. And that this is like a, it's not just for a single person to grapple with. It's for all people. Uh, and I just as another encouragement of why this is applicable i think to the entire church yeah mm -hmm. could be yeah. single again <laughs> yeah. yeah i want to want to put in another plug for uh dr hitchcock's book the significance of singleness a theological vision for the future of the church so by all means grab a copy and start to read this together in your churches you'll be well served for it this has been also, great. We also are uh, going to post the recording from Christina's keynote uh, speech at our uh, conference that we had in the fall. So you can keep, keep a lookout on our website for that as well if you want some more on this topic. And um, probably a little more academic and uh, really deep dive into theological significance. Yeah. Uh, on that note, do, do check our website for other resources as well. Uh, even during the shutdown, we have a lot of things going on. Our president, Dr. Mark Young, is moderating weekly webinars on various topics of great interest. So I would encourage you to sign up for those. And want to say uh, thanks to my co-host, Tessa Thompson. Oh, thank you, Don. For, for her brilliant repartee. <laughs> and thanks to you for spending some time with us here at Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. And we look forward to talking to you again soon.